Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. People that are out building or innovating or selling clean energy every single day, you have such a powerful and important story to tell and you just come and be yourself. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of cleantech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in, and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I am thrilled that you've chosen to spend yet another week with me. Today's guest doesn't consider herself an entrepreneur, but after listening in, I'm sure you'll agree that most corporate leaders and startup founders alike can learn a lot from Bernadette Del Chiaro. Her accolades are many, and we discussed them in the episode, but I thought it would be great to round out this Women's History Month with someone who has made an indelible mark on the solar and energy storage sectors through her advocacy and political organizing. Today, you'll hear how Bernadette helped create the California legislative initiatives now credited as drivers to the current solar boom in the United States. She's now instrumental in driving forward energy storage initiatives as well, like SB 700, which has been dubbed the Million Solar Roofs of Energy Storage. We dig into these and more, including Bernadette's advice on how you can be more active in lobbying and policy right where you live. Check out other great founders, stories, and solar startup advice in 140-plus other episodes archived over at mysuncast.com. Hey, while you're there, you can learn more about our Suncast tribe or join our mailing list so you don't miss out when the next episode drops. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Okay, Solar Warriors, if you are... Living in California, you certainly know today's guest, uh, unless you're under a rock or just don't know anything about uh, solar or storage or anything that's been happening for the last 15 years with our industry. If you're outside of California, then if you don't know our guest, you are, you're in for a treat. She has been instrumental in driving policy and now serving in a leadership role to nurture policy and to nurture our entire industry forward and as they say, as goes California, so goes the nation in many, many ways. Bernadette Del Chiaro has been at the forefront and, as she likes to say, has been a policy agitator for the better part of uh, 20 years now. She is presently the executive director of the California Solar and Storage Association, formerly known as CalSIA. She was formerly the director of Clean Energy and Global Warming Programs at Environment California, was the lead advocate to the Million Solar Roofs campaign that also known or dubbed SB1, actually dubbed Million Solar Roofs known as SB1. And she's worked on numerous clean energy bills and initiatives throughout her illustrious career. I am really honored to invite Bernadette on to Suncast. Thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Bernadette, for those who may be uninitiated, I'd like to get a sense from you. You know, we probably won't go all the way back, or maybe we will, but the first sort of toe in the water here, I'd really like to get a sense of 
how your career began to pivot towards clean energy. And I'm not going to say solar power in, implicitly because you've been focused on many other aspects and continue to, but I'm curious how your career got that pivot and then you decided that you were going to focus this element of your career in terms of policy and advocacy on fighting for renewables and particularly in California. Any native Californian is basically living under a rock if you're not excited about the prospects of converting all of our sunshine into pollution-free electricity. I mean, mm -hmm. I think I, at a very young age, I remember being excited by the idea. I remember actually reading in the San Francisco Chronicle, which is my local uh, newspaper growing up, and I was in high school, and reading about the City of Davis projects, and I'm spacing out on the name of the project, but uh, Ed Murray of Aztec Solar did it, and there's the that kind of, at the time, revolutionary housing development that was built in Davis, uh, where everybody had their, their super eco homes and um, they all had solar hot water built into them and very efficient design and shared backyards and, and the whole thing. I remember reading a story about that development in high school and, and being really inspired by that and excited by it. But yeah, it took another 20 years for me to really hone in my career and my uh, professional work um, specific to solar. I think the only interesting thing for some to understand is that in 2002, when I moved back to California and, and took on a job as an energy policy advocate for a statewide environmental group, moving back here from the East Coast, many years on the East Coast, you know, the environmental community was really focused on uh, the Rio standard and really focused on wind energy. That was the resource, the renewable energy resource that yeah. everybody was really focused on and, and that was showed the greatest promise in California. And uh, a second to that would be geothermal. Mm -hmm. Solar was a distant, distant third and just so expensive. Nobody could really fathom it ever really taking off. Of course, David Hochschild and Adam Browning were already doing some pretty innovative stuff in San Francisco and had just passed a ballot initiative there, but it was uh, pretty small beans. And, you know, it was a couple of systems um, on city mm -hmm. buildings. Nobody in Sacramento doing statewide energy policy was really doing a lot on, on solar. So I had this opportunity as a new sort of a newcomer back, you know, coming back to the state, but new to Sacramento, new to doing policy work in California to sort of take a step back and, and really sort of see where what niche needed to be filled. It was uh, obvious that we should be working on and having a comprehensive, far-reaching, aggressive, ambitious policy on on solar and in particular, urban-based solar or, or built environment-based solar, if you will, um, hence mm -hmm. the, the roofs moniker. But, you know, just taking it advantage of the no-brainer nexus between energy demand in our in our communities and our homes and our buildings and and the sunshine that falls on us every day. Nobody really else wanted to work on it. Nobody was working <laughs> on it at a statewide level, really. And so it was kind of a wide open path. And of course it was a difficult path. It took us many, many years to pass the Million Solar Roofs Initiative and maybe we can get to that. But yeah, it was just a combination of coming into something with kind of a fresh perspective and no uh, no previous kind of obligations, if you will, to to tie me down and just being able to, to embrace something that nobody else was working on at the time. Well, Bernadette, you mentioned the million solar roofs. It's something that I very sort of viscerally lived through. It was, uh, you know, for me, not, I, I didn't see it coming as it were the way that you did. And I'm really curious to hear how this all sort of came about. My story or sort of tie into this is in 2000 and 
five, I came back from serving the Peace Corps and I finished out my grad degree. And in so doing, I did a study on solar energy and discovered that there was this thing called the California Solar Initiative in 2006 that was going to be launched by then Governor Schwarzenegger. And it literally launched my career. (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, I like so many, I think, uh, listening to this show, have a debt of gratitude to you and and those uh, alongside you who worked so hard to bring this initiative into being because it it quite literally gave me the vehicle to move out of uh, the music industry and into uh, what has become my home, the solar industry. How would you characterize the early days that led up to what became known as the Million Solar Roofs Initiative? Could you take us back there and kind of put us in the room, help us understand how this came about? Yeah, it's a really fun story that most people really don't know. There's one thing that is useful for for people that have never worked in a state capital environment and maybe not that familiar with how things actually work in politics, but there's actually a wonderful democratization of the process in so much as any legislator can introduce a bill on any topic that they want. And it's a pretty even stage. So with that as backdrop, a senator that really wasn't known as a clean energy champion got bit by the bug of doing something on solar. And this was a man by the name of Senator Kevin Murray, who represented the city of Culver City down in Los Angeles. He gave my environmental group I was working at the time was named Environment California. And we were, uh, we still are, uh, they still are a statewide uh, non profit, entirely citizen-funded environmental organization with a focus on state-level work to improve the, the environment. He probably called a number of different environmental groups and didn't get anywhere. And <laughs> We weren't the biggest name uh, at the time. We'd actually just formed about six months prior to the phone call. But his office gave us a call and said, hey, we'd like to do a bill on solar energy. Do you have any ideas? Well, I was this newly minted clean energy advocate with, uh, had been working on doing some renewable portfolio standard work. We had um, actually been part of a coalition to get the city of Los Angeles, the LA Department of Water and Power to mirror the state's uh, first ever RPS that was passed in 2002. So we were engaged in that campaign down in LA, but we didn't have yet a legislative agenda up in Sacramento. And so this kind of afforded this opportunity, this fun question of, okay, we love solar. And I had been thinking about doing something with solar. And here was this author to work with. So we went in and met with him and and pitched the idea after giving it some thought that the most logical thing to do from a what's the fastest way to 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 build solar energy in California in the most cost effective manner that really makes a huge difference um, was to mandate it on new construction and build it into the homes as they're being built. And at the time, California was going through this giant boom in housing. We were building somewhere on the order of 150,000 single family homes and another 50,000 multifamily homes a year. These were all homes that were being built without solar panels on the roof and solar panels were incredibly rare, you know, a couple hundred uh, deployed around the state at the time. We just thought that, you know, from a public interest perspective, that was the most logical, uh, cost-effective thing to do is put it right into building code, make the price come down, uh, make it easy for consumers, um, et cetera, et cetera. So we pitched that idea to him and he said, I love it. Let's write the bill together. So we became the sponsor of SB 289. This is 2003. It uh, got scheduled for its committee. First committee was housing. 
it passed with flying colors, its first committee, and as a result, got a lot of media attention. So bills that just get introduced tend to get ignored because you never know if they're going to go anywhere. And bills that don't make it past their first committee get ignored because they didn't go anywhere. But if you get past that first hurdle and you have an interesting idea, you get a lot of attention. And so because we were thinking really big <laughs> and uh, really kind of revolutionary ideas, it got a lot of attention and um, it got national media attention and it got the attention of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who at the time was running for governor of California during the recall campaign in 2003. And so while we actually got stalled up in the next committee and the bill never went anywhere further uh, that spring, uh, we sort of, it was one of those um, lose the battle, but you know, you're winning the war. And I think that has pretty much been the story of, of, of solar, uh, particularly distributed uh, solar that has so many uh, opponents really to it. You know, we've just been steadily, steadily making progress. Uh, but that was obviously the first big, big giant pitch uh, that got us uh, down the field quite a, quite a ways. And pretty exciting that we are about to celebrate uh, finally reaching that million mark. So we met our the bill's goals, which were, of course, a capacity of megawatt goal of 3,000 megawatts a long time ago and ahead of schedule. But it's taken us this long to get to that millionth uh, interconnected uh, solar system. So uh, it's pretty exciting to, uh, and it's, it's a good time to take a step back and, you know, think about what, what did it take to get us to, you know, to where we are today. For sure. I love that. Do you, do you guys have a sense of when that millionth roof is going to be installed? Is that something you're tracking? Yes, it is. And we're uh, actively calculating it right now. The, um, the X factor is uh, the publicly owned utilities don't uh, report their data in a kind of timely fashion, uh, quite like we have for the investor owned utilities like PG&E. So in order to really have an accurate calculation, we, we've got to do a little bit of digging. And of course, we only recently are starting to get the 2018 data as our starting point. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say publicly that I, I think the calculations are going to show that we're looking more at June of this year. Some earlier estimates put it a little bit earlier, but I think we're looking at June. Uh, but again, we, we've got to get some of these final data points in order to get them more accurate. And I mean, nobody's going to ever know which one is the millionth. We, you know, install literally hundreds of and interconnect hundreds of systems a day and, and they're in over 50 different utility territories. So uh, there's no way to do it in a, in a neat way, but oh, that's get, too bad. I know that, I'm sure that your staff has brainstormed ad nauseum for you as, a, <laughs> as everyone else, how to do that. So I won't press. <laughs> yeah. are, are you, uh, are you guys planning anything fun? Is, uh, is Carter trying to get folks to together to celebrate this? Absolutely. And um, we're, we're working with the Energy Commission and hoping to bring the current governor and the former governor uh, together for a VIP stu star-studded celebration event. I mean, it really is, a, I think it's a, a milestone that 100 years from now we will be looking at. It's, it's an incredible time and we've, it's taken a lot and a lot of people have been part of this. And it's, you know, it's just a really exciting time to finally get to this really significant goal. I love it. And I love actually being able to say that I, I too can say that I've been a part of it. Even Absolutely. Though I, I left California several years ago. Um, I, uh, well, is there, is there some way, like we're really early in interview for me to be asking like, what's going to be follow-up questions on this, but is there some way that if folks were, are interested that they could actually find out how to attend that celebration that I would love to know. I'd love to yeah. go. Yeah. I mean, well, it's a self-promoting here, but people should go to the CALSA website, you know, C-A-L-S-S-A. -S 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 
and uh, sign up for our uh, mailing list and our news. And we'll absolutely be uh, putting out the notices far and wide as soon as we get those those hard to nail down VIPs and a, and a date. And we will we will be letting the whole world know about this. Fantastic. Well, I can tell you, I will be begging for my VIP pass. Um, <laughs> that sounds, I mean, it's, it sounds like something that's well, well worth celebrating. I mean, it's, it, it should, it should eclipse the Equinox party. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, Bernadette, I actually wonder, you know, one thing we didn't touch on, and I've got a few questions here before we get into storage, because I think we're going to talk a bit about storage. You know, you're quite the the as I said before, your policy agitator is one of the ways you one of the names and monikers you gave yourself in a, in one video I saw. You you know just like our friend Danny Kennedy and many others got your start as a uh, rabble rouser with uh, the chief rabble rousers of Greenpeace. I'm curious, what is it about Greenpeace? What do you learn in Greenpeace that helps you be a good policy advocate or a good uh, political organizer? Well, I did have a, a long. Uh, start. I got it. I, got, I did get my start with Greenpeace. I um, I've taken many roads not traveled, uh, and, and one of them was actually my experience with Greenpeace was a little unique in that uh, I actually lived a year uh, down in the Mojave Desert staffing for free, basically a community outreach office focused on trying to prevent an unlined dirt trench radioactive waste dump from being built couple miles from the Colorado River. I think the thing about Greenpeace that I, I loved and respected and still do is, you know, they really think, they think very big and they capture the public's imagination on either problems or solutions. And the power of capturing the public's imagination on something and just breaking through the din of the debates that can get really wonky really fast is incredibly powerful. And I think we in the uh, energy disruptors world, um, as well as I think the environmental world and to the extent that those worlds come together around energy. But I think in general, we leave that tool on the table far too often. We dive into really technical wonky details, which of course are important, but we really don't engage the public in the conversation and in the fight. That really sums it up. And I think that sums up the million solar roofs. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I was critiqued and uh, really made fun of, frankly, <laughs> uh, here in Sacramento. Uh, it was like, oh, you're the solar roofs girl. You know, like, oh, you roll, you roll eyes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Roofs, all you care about are solar roofs. We want to build big, huge things. You know, you just want to build little roofs, little boutique niche, you know, things. And, um, you know, I think what people that provided that critique we're missing is that we were able to capture the public's imagination and and their understanding. And and even to this day, I get a lot of critiques of using the terminology of roofs because, of course, a huge fraction of our market are ground-mounted systems that aren't on roofs at all. And that's a, a valid critique. But again, when you're talking about winning hearts and minds and winning arguments in the court of public opinion, which in our democracy, thankfully, uh, is still the way decisions, big decisions get made to, to mire a conversation in, in wonky terminology that nobody really outside a small, narrow circle of energy <laughs> professionals understand what you're talking about, that, you know, that's, that's really a, you know, a missed opportunity. If, if we obviously had no political opponents and <laughs> we weren't disruptors, then you could 
you could just walk out, but that that's obviously not our, our reality. I think anyone listening understands that the California Solar and Storage Association is an advocacy group that is meant to sort of collectively harness our voice and, and provide opportunities for the industry to move forward in a collective way. You guys recently, uh, and I'm not sure how recently, to be honest, I think it was maybe oh, a year ago, formally switched over to be the Solar and Storage Association from instead of the Solar Energy Industries Association. Could you tell me a little bit about the name change? And I'd also like your perspective as the executive director of what the purpose of CALSA is and, and why, as a separate entity from SIA, folks in the industry should care. So a little bit of background. I started with the California Solar and Storage Association, formerly CalSIA, in 2013. So I'm, I'm coming up on my sixth year um, here with the organization. We have uh, built up a, a small but mighty a team um, of folks who are um, helping do numerous things to grow grow the market. We have an incredible board of directors and uh, and a membership beyond that that is really engaged and involved. And, and, and I say that just because my staff of eight is really you know, is obviously the core of, of the work that the association does, but uh, but we really have a, a heavily engaged uh, membership that lends uh, a lot of in-kind resources, if you will, to the efforts that we do and the work we do. We started this conversation about who we were and what our mission was several years ago, actually. We officially changed our name in February of 2018, so it's been about a year, but we had started the conversation probably two years prior of recognizing that Obviously, seeing ahead the uh, the writing on the wall that energy storage was going to be critical um, for the continued growth of of solar, um, and that's you know whether we're talking utility scale projects or behind the meter uh, distributed projects, uh, we're going to need to make that sunshine at night if we're going to you know not go over a cliff. You know, you really had to be ignoring the signals to miss that one. So it, it wasn't particularly insightful, um, I don't think. But uh, but we we did have the um, forethought enough to at least uh, front burner the conversation. And um, and literally, as we were making preparations for celebrating Palsia's 40th anniversary, it's a 40 year old organization. As we were making preparations for that celebration. In 2017, we were simultaneously quietly renaming the organization and uh, relaunching it um, shortly thereafter. And I, I really, I just have so much credit to give to this board of directors that many of whom have been in business for 40 years and, and Calcia is like their firstborn child. <laughs> um, and they are just such a forward thinking, innovative, a bunch of, of business men and women that they, they saw right away the value of um, expanding uh, the tent, both in terms of being forward thinking, pushing the industry in that direction, pushing the marketplace in that direction, but frankly, also just reflecting what was already starting to happen um, in the in the field in the marketplace and they saw it as you know just a natural progression first the industry started off as solar thermal only because PV was not a market or a business uh, at all really and they expanded to PV and now they're expanding to storage and it's just a natural progression so it was pretty seamless and painless and when we launched the same thing I was you know me and my staff and our board we were all prepared with lots of talking points and explanation videos and people being very concerned or opposed to it and it was almost a non-event but in a very good way I think people just recognize it and of course many of the old timers will point out that batteries have always been a part of the PV market um, from the <laughs> get-go right. so 
we're simply reflecting the past as well as the future. For those who are unfamiliar, when she refers to folks on the board of directors, we will have upcoming an interview with Gary Gerber, Sunlight and Power, who literally has <laughs> has had his business. I think it might be one of the oldest in the area, 40, 41 years now. John Birdner, um, I mean, a legend. Howard Winger, of course, another legend. I'm looking at you know Janine Cotter and Noel uh, Luminalt. They've just been around, a lot of these companies have been around for, as you say, ages. Uh, it speaks volumes and of course there are companies throughout the u.s with uh, that sort of back uh, back story but i've looked and i struggle to find companies that have been around that long that are still supporting local association for one reason or another so it's it's really beautiful to see how calsa has uh, has grown calcia and now calsa has grown uh, but i do want to sort of put a pin in one point or one one piece of my question and that is a lot of folks do still ask themselves, you know, why, why should I join the association? I know that Carter spends his entire life thinking about that question. I'd love to hear your answer to that, because I think that it's important for folks to think through the notion of how do you, you speak with your feet. And I personally believe that far too few people in our industry, whether you're in California or North Carolina, become a part of an association and, and support in that, in that way, in that productive way. Yeah, thank you for coming back to that question. It's it is critical. So you know we have built Calsa into now a 500 uh, member organization, and that makes us the largest actually clean energy business group in the state of California. So that's incredible, and it's great, and it's a testament to those 500 business leaders that recognize the value of an association like Calsa. Um, but there, that's you know there's still at least 500 more that are you know, writing this one out and not participating. Um, I think number one, and and, and far too many, uh, I think business leaders don't quite recognize this, is that, you know, solar is not a spectator sport. It is absolutely one of these industries that is almost 100% dependent on public policy. And if you're not shaping that public policy, it is going to shape you. And it is not a foregone conclusion that California will continue to support solar energy in a way that allows our businesses to continue to grow and thrive and exist in a relatively stable market. You know, we've been blessed in California. I think one of the things that we're proudest of, and I'm proudest of as a, as a Californian, the various roles I've played, is just that we have a very steadily growing market. We've we've tried we've done a fairly good job of the, avoiding the boom and bust cycles that we've seen in other countries and in other markets. That did not happen by accident. And a lot of folks used to go, oh, Jerry Brown, he's, you know, the greenest governor around. Surely you walk in the room and you just get whatever you want. <laughs> and just nothing could be further from the truth. Not that Jerry Brown wasn't a green governor, but, you know, he's subject to all of the political pressure of our very well-heeled opponents um, as anybody. And he can't just, he's not a king. He can't just wave a wand and do whatever he wants. He has all of these policies and bills and decisions, whether it's the Public Utilities Commission deciding on a rate structure, or it's the legislature passing incentives for batteries, or it's a local building department throwing up roadblocks, everything comes down to politics. And if you aren't, as a business leader, 
shaping that landscape and ensuring that your business has a smooth pathway of growth, you are not fully engaged in the reality of, of solar. So I think that's the number one reason why we exist at Kelsa is to keep that pathway, that market smooth. I think secondarily, and these are important too, but you know, we also provide cutting edge critical information. So our members get the heads up on things um, that are important to them. And then, you know, obviously lots of good networking and community building. You know, as disruptors, we have a common enemy and and life is hard (laughs) for a solar uh, worker and a solar business. And it's nice to to come around and and share a beer and and share war, war wounds. And there's also a lot of that that we do at Kelsa. You know, one of the things that I think is also, and we don't have to dwell on it, but one of the things I think that folks also often don't understand is that you don't have to be a business to join the association. There are large members that aren't companies. Is that that's accurate, correct? We created a um, a startup category also for those who are really starting off uh, doing software development or have some new idea that is just, you know, you don't even have any sales yet. We have a really um, pretty cheap rate for folks that are, you know, new into the market or in startup. It's $500 a year and people can pay monthly. So we're a pretty cheap date, actually. I think um, one of the things people confuse with us is we're, we're not uh, pay to play and we're not solely there for the big companies. We work with everybody, big and small, and we kind of keep our association pretty uh, kind of small D democratic in terms of accessible. All the information is shared with our members evenly and our members get to participate in, in all the decisions we make. We try to spread the burden of financing these campaigns and these efforts um, out across the, the whole industry. And it makes it possible for us to actually keep our, our annual dues fairly low relatively to what we're supporting like 50% of the U.S. market and our dues are actually pretty reasonable. I think most people would be surprised if they took a look under the hood at what they get for their membership. How closely do you guys work with, with I'll say Vote Solar, but organizations like Vote Solar? I know Adam and uh, obviously David, who's now a commissioner, like they've been a, <laughs> a steady hand alongside uh, Calcia for many years. Many folks, maybe even many inside of the 500 of your own members, I don't understand. How does this policy come to fruition? How do these organizations work together? There's no one person that ever accomplishes anything big, right? It's all—it's always a group of people. Vote Solar is an awesome organization, great allies, and have always been since I've been working in California, at least since 2002. The current bill we're all working together on, SB 288, the um, Solar Bill of Rights, is a great example of good collaborative work. So we uh, basically last year sat down and as CALSA, as our kind of um, policy, um, annual policy meeting, discussed this idea of let's codify for the first time ever a protection of the right to self-generate and self-store and self-shape uh, your load behind the meter. In the state of California, that, that protection does not actually exists, surprising to most. And we're really subject to the whims of the 50 plus different utilities and how they want to potentially uh, disrupt or or, uh, discriminate against those who choose to self-generate. We sat down and decided this would be a priority of ours. And then we sat down shortly thereafter um, with Vote Solar, brought in also the Solar Rights Alliance, which I would love to talk about. Really exciting new organization that all of your listeners should to know about. And we started to craft what the bill would look like together. 
and then found ourselves a great bipartisan team of authors. And the bill's been introduced um, and we're now working as a coalition. Really, it's everybody has their strengths and brings something uh, different to the table in a kind of campaign environment where you really need to do a lot of education and outreach and communications and lobbying and all that goes into passing bills. So we're working very closely with Vote Solar, Solar Rights Alliance, other organizations that are in the, you know, environmental groups. There's usually like one or two people that lead the charge, but there's always um, dozens and dozens that do all the heavy lifting and you got to collaborate and work together and play upon each other's strengths. Well, you mentioned the Solar Rights Alliance. For those who aren't familiar, can you help us understand that one? Yeah, this is such a great organization. Basically, this is controversial for some, but it's uh, kind of think of the NRA for the sun. (laughs) So there's really, if you think about it, there's now almost a million consumers in California that have solar panels on their property behind the meter for their own use. And whether that's a school or a home or multifamily housing, rental property, you name it, there's a million of us out there. And there's no single voice that is exclusively dedicated to fighting for the rights of the individual to own a little bit of the sun. So that organization now exists, the Solar Rights Alliance, and it is as open to the diversity of our customer base as you would want them to be. We have really fun meetings whenever the Solar Rights Alliance members show up. They're, uh, in fact, part of the reason why we have a bipartisan team um, supporting the Bill of Rights was because the Solar Rights Alliance did a lobby day last August and got very strong Republican senator from up in um, actually representing the Paradise uh, Chico area to co-author this bill with us. So that to me speaks volumes of the power behind that consumer-based voice and just pure grassroots organizing that you can do around solar. So Solar Rights Alliance, brand new, needs all the support we can give it. If you have a customer base, if you work for a company that has customers in, in California, you should recruit and encourage those people to join. It's free to join. And uh, Dave Rosenfeld, who runs that group, will work with you on putting together a co-branded email or however you want to do it. It's very non-intrusive. All of the, the companies we've been, uh, Solar Rights has been working with have had great success in, in sending out emails to their to their membership on this. So that's number one, is we want to grow this organization to be a hundred thousand members strong. And then second is they'll take your money. (laughs) However you want to give it. Uh, It's a very grassrootsy organization and it's a C4, which is a IRS designation most people don't know about, but it's really important to understand that that gives them unbridled ability to go lobby um, in the state capital. So it means private donations are actually really important because you can't get grants uh, if you're a C4. So we want them to be able to really go to battle against our opponents and speak with a really loud, clear voice on behalf of consumers. And they need to do that with our, with our support. Do we run the risk of uh, the Solar Rights Alliance therefore becoming some sort of a PAC? Well, I don't think there'd be any risk to that. That would be amazing. <laughs> but uh, one one thing at a time, we got to get the group off the ground and get it staff funded. And uh, and maybe someday, I mean, if you think about it again, if if it were to have um, grown Wouldn't to that the, be amazing though, the solar pack? 
<laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, we have a we do have a political action committee at Kelsa and we have um, recently just launched an initiative where we are doing joint uh, fundraising events with SIA, the Large Scale Solar Association of California and um, the American Wind Energy Association of California. And we're doing joint events for clean energy. And it's been really, really successful and very powerful. It's very important that we support legislators that support us. You better believe that PG&E and the other utilities and, and the oil industry and everybody that's not really in our camp, they give millions and millions of dollars to legislators that are champions of their cause. And it's a veritable tug of war. We do engage at that level, but right now, Solar Rights Alliance is just a grassroots organization that mobilizes people on behalf of legislation like the Solar Bill of Rights. I wonder, imagine if you could complete a full solar design in just one minute. What would you do differently? Complete a design during the intake phone call so you can quickly route the best customers to your best salespeople? Check. Run a design from scratch in front of the customer in order to make them feel like they are part of the process? Check. Optimize your design to make sure you're squeezing out every penny of cost? Yep. Check that too. All those and more are being done by Helioscope customers right now now to improve their sales process, increase close rates, reduce costs, and shorten sales cycles. You can find out how the speed of Helioscope can transform your business as well. Go over to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor and click on the Helioscope banner. You'll redeem your 60-day free trial. Just a note to you listeners, this is the last week of the Helioscope 60-day free trial, so if you've been waiting, wait no longer. You know, I wonder, what would you do with an extra two hours every day? What if there was a better way to run your reports, send your invoices, manage projects at all stages, monitor your sites, and if none of it involved copying and pasting from Excel? Well, PowerHub makes solar projects and portfolios easier to manage. It's flexible and customizable so it can support your business and make your life easier, saving you time and saving your business money. Using PowerHub makes you look good. That's your ROI. Go to powerhub.com forward slash suncast and learn how PowerHub can superpower your asset management. One last quick note, on April 29th, I'll be hosting a one-day mastermind in Puerto Rico ahead of the Solar Power Puerto Rico conference. It's focused on helping solar executives accelerate business growth, and it's called Precharge. My good friends James Ellsmore and Lisa Ann Pinkerton will join me to discuss personal branding, social selling, and PR insider tips. We'll also be joined by special guest experts on the Puerto Rico renewables market, talking about that new 100% renewables legislation that is about to pass. But most importantly, you will get personal attention from our intimate group of experts to help you achieve breakthroughs in your business. If you're interested, make sure you're on my mailing list so you get the announcement coming out tomorrow. You can also email me with pre-charge in the subject line, and I'll be sure to get you the application link. In 2004, while you were an advocate over at Environment California, you guys had a report come out that estimated a program similar to California Solar Initiative could reduce the average install cost of solar PV to, at the time, $5.5 a watt. And in fact, by mid-2014, it was below that target. 
which is a 45% reduction from the cost in 2007 when the California Solar Initiative began. So clearly you have uh, been a part of having a track record of driving down costs, one of the areas of cost that is massively in need still of uh, of cost out is storage. So I'd love to hear from you what's in store for storage. It is fun to look back on the crystal ball that we did back in in those early years of the Million Solar Roofs Initiative campaign efforts um, and how conservative our estimates actually were once you once you start to energize these markets. You know, economies of scale, basic, simple economies of scale really do work. And we've seen it with other consumer products and there's no reason to think that solar PV would be any different. And I don't think there's any reason to believe that energy storage will be any different either. And there's always hiccups. I mean, you'll remember and your listeners will remember some of the hiccups we experienced with uh, photo Tax, right, with the shortage of silicon and, and just the unpredictability of growth. And I think, uh, I suspect we'll, we'll see something similar, but we'll work through those hiccups um, on the storage side. Absolutely, I'm bullish about energy storage coming down further in price as we grow uh, demand uh, for the product. And that was the premise of SB 700 that we um, passed last year, dedicating up to $800 million uh, in the state of California to incentives that will be designed just like the California Solar Initiative was for PV. You know, start off high, step down the rebate over time, zero it out, and create otherwise a technology neutral uh, marketplace so that it's, um, you know, may the best technology win and all of the great ones uh, survive. And we hopefully will come out of that program in uh, five or so years years with uh, storage commercially viable without either the ITC or the rebate. Now that's ambitious and that's a shorter timeline than we expected uh, that we experienced with uh, photovoltaics. Although those that really followed the market closely, you'll know that we reached that commercially viable status early with the Million Solar Roofs Initiative. And we think we should be able to get even further along, especially given that electric cars are growing at the same time. The manufacturers that are making those batteries are the exact same ones that are making our batteries. So we should be able to achieve some pretty impressive economies of scale. The key is to remove the barriers and get consumers comfortable with the technology. And we probably won't see that cost decline right away, but we think it's it's definitely in our future for sure. And we're pretty bullish about it. Kalsa, in a press release in August when... SB 700 was approved, called it the million solar roofs of energy storage. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> similar to the moonshot of, uh, of the California Solar Initiative. And, uh, you know, this, the aim of building nearly 3000 megawatts of behind the meter storage by 2026 is is a huge one. It's a big commitment. It begs the question, kind of similar to circa 2005 in solar no one had the answer to what's the real hurdle for solar PV. But I wonder now, 15 years on, do you feel like you've got a better handle on this? What do you feel are the major hurdles for storage in California now that we have this SB 700 legislation in place? It's, it seems like a foregone conclusion that it's going to proliferate. What's keeping us, what's holding us back? What's holding costs up right now? 
Well, I think, um, you know, what we saw back in 2004 and what is clear today and is not a proprietary knowledge by any stretch is just the biggest barrier is cost and, and cost effectiveness for the consumer, you know, payback. Hence the, the idea behind the incentives way back when for PV and now the incentives for storage to help close that gap on payback period for consumers. I would say looking ahead, there's still a number of barriers um, identical to what PV has experienced and is still slogging through. Things like, you know, red tape around permitting and interconnection um, that really have the ability to create sizable cost, uh, soft cost increases um, and really harm our ability um, to get the job done. But I would say on storage, it also right now faces the same exact barrier that photovoltaics faced over a decade ago. And that is just a kind of consumer, a sense of urgency and opportunity on the part of the seller slash consumer. And I think we're, we're kind of in this place where we're kind of circling around each other, checking each other out. and We haven't quite committed yet. But I hear that time and again from my installer uh, member companies. And it's it's going to happen. But one of the big problems we're experiencing, and this gets back to why should people be part of uh, CALSA, is our rate structures and our policies for distributed energy resources are far from stable, clear, consistent rules of the game. They're constantly changing the goalposts on us. And it is incredibly hard to sell a payback period, uh, look a consumer straight in the face and tell them how much is this going to cost and how much are they going to save when the Public Utilities Commission is constantly changing the rate structures underlying our policies and our market here. So we've got a lot of work to do in California to, to stabilize those rate structures so we can stabilize the benefits for our consumers. And then we've got a lot of work to do to get consumers uh, comfortable with the product. But that will happen. And it's, you know, there's a lot of naysayers out there. And there were with photovoltaics back in 2004. We'll get there. It's, it's, it's a no-brainer. It is just a no-brainer. We're going to be pretty successful. And I, you know, I think the the latest catastrophes that have struck the state of California are sort of that crisis and opportunity moment for us. The public is already hungry for the solutions we provide. That That's a given, and, and Californians have always been forward-thinking, new technology, embracing consumers. There's now a lot of urgency in a lot of people's minds about the need to not just shift to clean energy, but the need to shift to reliable and safe energy. And distributed. And distributed. <laughs> I think I think there people are hungry for all of the above. And frankly, if we're going to meet the state's decarbonization goals, uh, we need all of the above. Um, but absolutely, people want energy that's close to home, that's controllable. We just need our policymakers to understand that distributed energy can be actually a really, really powerful driver of reliability for the state. I want to shine a light here on, you know, Sunrun recently won a first of its kind sort of landmark uh, opportunity with the New England capacity auction using some 5,000 homes bundled as solar plus storage as acting as a virtual power plant. Many in California are wondering, when will we have something like that? <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? <laughs> what, do you, what, do you see from, what do you see from the ivory tower of CALSA? Well, I mean, that's actually one of the kind of pieces of the um, Solar Bill of Rights is to require our utilities, all of them, to actually embrace um, the services that distributed generation can provide and to create a marketplace for them and create a tariff. I mean, we literally have rules, some of the rules in place in California that prohibit batteries from discharging back onto the grid, for example. We really leave a lot 
uh, on the table in California with regards to the incredible services that are really super smart distributed energy uh, technologies can provide. And it's really a lack of embracing and imagination on, on the part of um, some utilities and, and some regulators to just not recognize uh, what we can do. I think the what Sunrun has done and the state of Massachusetts is incredibly exciting. I think that's absolutely where California is headed. How quickly we get there will be a function of, of you know, how good we are at advocating and educating <laughs> policymakers, frankly. You know, some of the CCAs have been making a lot of waves lately, suggesting that PG&E now going through restructuring bankruptcy, that they get out of power generation altogether. I don't know if CALSA has a formal position, so I'm asking you as an individual, how do you see as a longtime uh, policy uh, influencer the current PG&E bankruptcy case and, and what it means for utilities broadly in California moving forward? Yeah, I think the writing's on the wall. I mean, I am speaking as an individual here, but it's pretty clear that even before the bankruptcy and the and the campfire disaster, that the role of California's investor-owned utilities was changing. There's some incredible statistic that the PUC put out about a year ago that said that 80% of California electricity consumers would be either a customer of a community choice aggregator or a self-generator through distributed energy. And that really leaves a very small uh, slice of the market for the utilities to provide power for. So I think that long predates uh, PG&E's bankruptcy and, and the disaster, but this just brings it to the fore and I think accelerates that transition so what exactly they end up looking like coming out of bankruptcy and, and frankly, what San Diego Gas and Electric and Edison looks like, I think that, that that's a million dollar question that nobody has a clear answer to. But what we think would be interesting is for there to be a real heavy focus on the role of a distribution utility and one that is either regulated better for its distribution services and or where there is a marketplace set up to where the the price signals are aligned with uh, providing good services and taking advantage of of distributed energy in in an efficient manner. But I think that's really where California needs to go. It's not to say that 100% of our energy or any even come close to saying that will come from distributed resources. But I think it's fair to say that a good chunk of this market, if not half, uh, will need to if we're going to electrify uh, everything and decarbonize everything. You're not going to get there with all a centralized top-down system in a reliable and cost-effective manner. And so, you know, I think that conversation that's been had for about a decade now of the utility of the future is uh, kind of swiftly upon us. And it's an exciting time. And the CCAs are certainly accelerating that conversation with their role of procuring power. I'm not the first to admit, uh, but I'll say out loud for the rest of us, most of us, if we're honest, we really don't understand how to engage in policy as lay people. Can we seek publicly and formally your advice? How would you have us be better advocates or engage more fully in policy beyond just becoming members of CALSA? The biggest thing is it's not that scary and it's there's no uh, advanced degree required. <laughs> um, the biggest thing is to just take baby steps and show up. So beyond being just a member of your local association, we do lobby days all the time. They're super fun and they are absolutely uh, beginner uh, lobbyist friendly. And Can you I really just tell you though, that makes like the, the thought of lobby day makes, <laughs> makes me like it gives me butterflies. 
So don't don't like because you've been doing this your whole career. Don't yeah. write off the fact that this is not normal activity for most like solar guys. Okay, or or gals. Not not this is gender neutral. Like, help me understand how lobby days is not intimidating. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally know what you mean, and and I am not one of the other. There are definitely people in politics that like live and breathe politics, and you know are constantly you know there's like really political people. I'm actually not one of uh, of that. I don't cut out of that cloth. To me, politics is simply about talking to somebody who's essentially your neighbor and telling them about what you do and why you're passionate about what you do and why they should support what you do. And it's literally nothing more than that. So our lobby days, we've got, we're building them up to be like, and we had over 200 solar workers um, at our lobby day. Vast majority of them had never even stepped foot in the state capital or shook hands with an elected official before, not even their local mayor. (laughs) And we just basically, we arrange the schedule so people aren't just all over the place. But, you know, you basically go to the capitol for a day and you go in a group. So usually with a bunch of peers and, you know, five or six people, you just simply shake hands and say what you do. And that's all. There's nothing more. And these legislators absolutely love to hear from real people. And I say real, you know, not lobbyists, not wonks and policy experts that talk at them and lecture them all the day long. It's actually their real constituents and real voters that are doing real work. And that is just so meaningful and powerful. Even it's not a cynical power mongery place. It is real people trying to advance um, a good cause and make, make our state and our country better. And people that are out building or innovating or selling clean energy every single day, you have such a powerful and important story to tell and you just come and be yourself. In fact, we tell people wear whatever you would have worn to work that day. Do not get dressed up. So anyway, it's that simple. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) It sounds silly, but it, it isn't. It's powerful. You make it sound so easy. Uh, and I can say that I am, I can, I can legitimately say I'm now inspired. I want to be a part of a lobby day. I'm going to reach out to our local organization here in North Carolina and try to figure that piece out. You know, and I just wonder, like I can see, I grew up in a farm town. I feel like far too few people understand the actual the amount of uh, farming that takes place in California. They probably see California as surfers and bankers and <laughs> Silicon Valley types. But the reality is that's a very small microcosm of California. The rest are farmers. They're not unlike, they're in many ways so similar to my neighbors right here in North Carolina. And that's why sometimes it's hard for me to wrap my head around 200 people showing up on lobby day, some of them being farmers who have solar plants in their, uh, in their otherwise garden and who are also advocating for for solar power, and I'd love to see that in North Carolina. I think it's just that would be so powerful. It'd be powerful in in Iowa and Illinois, where there's also a huge contingent of Republican blue collar workers that are involved in taking this industry forward. In Virginia, I know that Next Tracker and Sia and several others have been working hard in Virginia and West Virginia on really shedding light on how the coal industry is transforming to clean energy. Um, you know, coal industry work rather, finding new life and new jobs in, in, the, in the clean industry. Well, I want to turn the corner here and focus out a bit more on your career and less on the day-to-day tactics. That was a lot of fun. I've, I have learned so much. 
but I'm also really interested in you, Bernadette, as a person and the, the arc of your career. I'm really curious to understand what are some key lessons and takeaways from the mentors in your life that have influenced how you've moved forward. And I'm curious through the lens of how you also then pass that along to those that you're now a leader for. There have been obviously a lot of mentors, a lot of people that I've learned from over the years. I think one that really stands out for me that that has been uh, just a really clear lesson that has influenced a lot of the work I've done was I was uh, working in the state of Connecticut back in the late 90s for this little known organization called the Toxics Action Center. <laughs> it was a mouthful. Our work was to help local neighborhood groups um, that were facing some sort of local environmental problem. And there were a lot more than I expected as a Californian out in a transplant out in New England, um, out in, in kind of this industrial past of New England, a lot of uh, hazardous waste sites that had just been covered over and were leak leaking into people's uh, water supplies. And, and, you know, when a community faces that kind of problem with maybe the, the company that did the you know, the dumping is long gone and no longer in business. And what do you do? And you can't get the government to pay attention. Our job was to actually go out to people's uh, kitchen tables, sit around their living room and the kitchen table and, and meet with their neighbors and help them map out a campaign to clean up their, their neighborhood. It extended uh, to the air and uh, Connecticut had six coal-fired power plants that were in the neighborhoods people lived. Um, this was not like what we have out west, where you have big giant coal plants out in New Mexico that you know ship electrons across great distances into LA. You know, back east, it's all right there <laughs> where people live and and breathe. So we ran a campaign uh, to clean up those coal-fired power plants. It was one of the early kind of clean energy efforts. We worked with local neighborhoods that lived around the power plants. And I was this ambitious, um, wanted to get this all done in one year um, <laughs> organizer. And I you know, poured everything into that campaign, worked just crazy amount of time and put, you know, built up this organization, this coalition. We had a bill in the state legislature tons of attention uh, to, to the effort. And I really genuinely, naively thought that we were going to win this thing in the first year of our campaign. And uh, we, of course, went down in flames the last night of the legislative session with the, um, uh, the utility just crushing us in the legislature. And I was so dejected. I was, you know, I had just lost this campaign. And um, my boss at the time, a gentleman named Matt Wilson, he was sort of almost amused. He saw a teachable moment there. And he just said, why, why are you so mad you lost? And I was so, of course, shocked and incensed by that very question, because of course, we're here uh, to win, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but he, he was challenging. And he basically led me to, to see uh, very clearly, and that went on to, to shape this campaign and all the other campaigns I've run, is that if you are actually putting out a big enough goal, and thinking big enough in terms of solving problems or creating opportunities, you're never going to get there in a short period of time without any roadblocks. And if you are, you're probably not thinking big enough. <laughs> and that if you're going to lose, lose really big with a big spotlight and one in which a loss in which you build your your power and your base and your the people you're working with and you come back fighting stronger. And so that campaign took us five years to win. 
but we ended up passing the strongest state level legislation to clean up coal-fired power plants in the country. We ended up unseating a governor and the leadership of the legislature and replacing them with people that were for us. We inspired dozens of communities to you know, an average everyday people that had never been political before to become political. We made a really big impact on on the state of Connecticut through that campaign. And that really influenced me. And if you look at the Million Solar Roofs Initiative, you know, we talked about SB 289 introduced in 2003, you know, lived a short, maybe three months uh, before dying, but attracted the attention of Governor Schwarzenegger and became one of his signature issues and took us till 2006 to sign the deal. So it was a long campaign with many, many heartbreaks in between, but it was a big idea that attracted a big amount of attention, a lot of opposition, but a lot more support. And that's what you got to do. Thinking small never got anybody anywhere. It's been very rare that I've done anything under the radar. Every once in a while, I will do something under the radar just to squeak by. But that usually does not serve us well because our kind of our support comes from out in the public. If you don't capture that, you don't really have much leverage at all. I'm directly making applications to things I've been working on as you speak. And it's really inspiring. Thank you for that. I also believe that leaders are readers and that readers consequently are leaders. I'd love to know what books you have gifted the most or perhaps simply just recommended and why. Well, my all time favorite book is um, Wallace Stegner's Angle of Repose. It's not a political book, nor is it about energy or climate change or anything like that. It's about basically the settlement of the West and um, unique perspective on American history. And he's just um, probably one of America's most beautiful writers. And the thing I really like about the Angle of Repose and and to the engineers among your listeners uh, might like this, but it it comes as actually, uh, the title is an engineering term. And it, it is about if you were to to pour a pile of dirt of any kind or some material that's been finely ground, there is an angle at which it comes to rest and stops flowing downhill. And that angle of repose is then, you know, directly related to sort of the point at which that material, based on its unique properties, comes into balance with gravity, essentially. And um, that's a metaphor in the book for uh, a very wandering uh, westward family and and where they find their angle of repose, uh, both within themselves and as a family. And and I just think it's a really beautiful concept. And it's kind of directly contrasts with my personality, which is almost to just always keep fighting and you never reach the top of the mountain, you know, and the work we're doing. Maybe by the time I'm 100, (laughs) we will... uh, be somewhere, uh, but we've got a really long way to go. And so it's it's an interesting question of what is your own personal angle of propose and the work you do and and when will you get there and when do you want to get there? And I don't have any answers, but <laughs> it's it's a cool it's a cool concept and it's just an incredibly beautifully written book about the American uh, West in particular. That's really cool. Wallace Stegner, Angle of Repose. We list these. And in fact, we're starting a book club where we give folks the opportunity to kind of peruse the books that are recommended. It's one of the reasons why over 150 of these episodes, I've asked folks what their uh, book recommendations are. Oh, that's great. I'll have to check it out. Yeah, indeed. Do you have any favorite quotes? So Khalil Gibran said, the eye of a human being is a microscope, which makes the world seem bigger than it really is. Hmm. The reason why I like that quote as it relates to the work that I do and and we do is that 
I actually think we see the problems in the world uh, to be much bigger than they really are. And I'm not saying this to belittle problems like climate change or air pollution, but it gets really easy to sort of get stuck in what is right in front of you and and just to think that that it, you know things just won't ever change and um, I think it kind of relates to this idea that we we have such this um, telescopic you know kind of view of the world in front of us and it leads to this uh, sort of feeling of smallness that we as individuals can't really ever change and I actually think though the problems and the world is smaller uh, than it seems. And, and I find that actually inspiring because we can make the world a better place. <laughs> like it's not Pollyanna, it's not quixotic, it's absolutely possible and it's exciting. We should put our hubris to work, frankly, <laughs> to making the world better. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, one of the things I think is exemplified in you is a tremendous amount of uh, consistency in both your message and your method. But I'm curious what you perceive, what habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life? I will say, uh, and, and there'll be many who disagree with this and will be arguing with me inside their heads and more power to you for doing that. Um, because I think if you ask, answer that question, is this what I should be working on? We probably all will have different answers of what, how we define should. But I'm going to go back to what we've talked about already on this, in this interview. And I think this, you know, if you ask what has shaped my work, and I think should shape more of our work um, collectively is, is this something that average everyday people, your local neighbor could understand and get excited about and participate in? Could you sit down with your grandma at Thanksgiving and explain it to her and have her nod her head and understand? And if not, why not? Is it still sh something you should be doing? And, and there's certainly many of us that are doing incredibly innovative work that is really behind the scenes and maybe not easy to explain, but, but can you do that? And can you win over the hearts and minds of the majority and talk about it uh, every day with people who aren't as smart as you <laughs> on that topic? And I think if more of us did that, we would uh, get a lot further, uh, both in our businesses and in, in politics. Well, Bernadette, before my final question, I'd love to know, how can people find more about you or connect with you? What's the best way? Well, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, uh, just like everybody else. Um, so you What's can... What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle, at Del Chiaro Solar. That's what it is, at Del Chiaro Solar. Sorry to have a hard last name. Yeah, that's all right. I'll link to them all on the show notes. It's fine. And I'll link to your LinkedIn account as well, as I'm sure that's a good way for folks to reach out to you. Of course, the website is calsa, C-A-L-S-S-A dot O-R-G. Let's end today with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening, Bernadette, that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, it's hard to say that I work on anything in the state of California that no one else is tracking <laughs> because <laughs> we're always in a fishbowl here with a big giant spotlight on, on what we do. And frankly, I live by that advice, which is what I do is out in the spotlight on purpose. But I would say there's definitely 
there's a lot of people who are not as bullish on distributed generation, on storage, and on advanced controls and energy um, services that are going to really, I think, take off. I think we're going to get there. And I think the energy utility and energy supplies of the future are not as far off as people think. And I think the events, the recent events, I alluded to this earlier, but I think the recent events in California are going to create a tipping point for this work that we're doing. So it's advanced controls. It is uh, smart storage. It is interactive to the grid, providing services. I think these things will will take off um, here pretty soon, sh- sooner than, than I think a lot of people are predicting. Visionary and committed political organizer Bernadette Del Chiaro is executive director for the California Solar and Storage Association. And it is indeed a joy and pleasure to have had you on Suncast today, Bernadette. Thanks for joining us. It's been great. So good to talk with you, Nico. Well, that's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warrior, but the dialogue doesn't have to end here. I want to encourage you that if you're running a solar company in California, please do consider joining CALSA. The work they're doing is essential and it does take a village. And if you're in another state, also please support your local association. As Bernadette said, solar is not a spectator sport and it depends heavily on public policy. Hey, if you've loved this episode, please take the time to show Bernadette and I some love on Twitter or LinkedIn by sharing this post with your friends, colleagues, hairstylist, and bartender. Your recommendation is perhaps the highest compliment we could receive. As always, I've curated some notes from our interview and have listed the resources and highlights from the discussion on the blog at mysuncast.com. To learn more about today's guest or past episodes, just click on that listen link, which will take you to the episodes page where you'll get the show notes, social media, and website links and fantastic book recommendations and all the back catalog of our other interviews chock full of goodies just like this one. While you're there, do check out our Suncast Tribe where you can be part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. Click on the member button to learn how to gain exclusive access to uncut interviews and tribe exclusives that don't make it into the public Suncast feed. And of course, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be notified when the next episode is out or perhaps where I'll be next, which happens to be in Puerto Rico. If you're planning to be in Puerto Rico, you really should consider coming on Sunday evening and spend Monday, April 29th, with me and a select group of friends at an exclusive one-day mastermind meeting focused on getting your business to the next level. There will also be special guests speaking on the recent Puerto Rico 100% Renewables legislation. It's sure to sell out. Details are only available to my Energy Tribe newsletter subscribers, and I will be sending out information about it tomorrow. Hey, I'm so happy you chose to be here again this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. And thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. 